is working the beat. It is Friday, May 29th, 2020. I'm Kevin along with Mike Kern. Glad you could join us on the show. Mike will join us in the second half of the show. Um, uh, he will join us after our first guest, and we will also be joined in the second half of the show by Ryan Lawrence, the former beat writer with uh, the Delco Times and uh, the Philadelphia Daily News. Uh, for the Phillies for roughly nine years. Uh, also was at the Philly Voice. Um, we'll talk a little on the Roy Halladay anniversary. Today is 10 years since Roy Halladay's perfect game uh, in Miami. Uh, one of the signature moments in Philly's history of that era, especially. Uh, and this all coming on the heels of, obviously, Todd Zalecki's book that we... Uh, talked to Todd about a couple weeks ago and we also talked to Todd that or uh, we've also talked a lot that there's a uh, ESPN special coming out tonight where Brandy Halliday talks about some of the issues that Roy had so we'll talk to we'll talk to Mike and we'll talk to Ryan about that and kind of our feelings now 10 years later but our primary guest and the one we're thrilled to have on I've known him for over a decade um, he was Certainly one of those guys as a beat writer, he was, you got a hold of him, you got an honest answer, you got a phone call return, and that's the best any beat writer can hope for. Obviously, you know, some stuff GMs had to keep a little cloak and, cloak and dagger, but Ruben Amaro Jr. was always a pleasure to cover. He also, whenever we took, you know, our opinions public about what we felt the club was, Ruben never took it personally, and... um uh, that, that is a trait I think every general manager should have, and he was confident, and he was understanding, and he never seemed to take anything too personally. So Ruben Amaro will join us um, to discuss the state of baseball to see where the game is going after with what has been a, a debacle right now in the negotiations about whether the sport will res- return uh, this season with the coronavirus uh, incidents going on. Um you know, to see the way it has been handled, I'm sure Ruben will say it probably would have been better handled in private and whether we're going to have a season or not. Uh, sp- future of the sport really does depend on it. So Ruben will join us to talk that. We'll talk a little Roy Halladay. We'll talk some other topics. Uh, given what happened in Minnesota last night, I also want to ask Ruben. Ruben was part of the Phillies team um, that was in Los Angeles in 1992 when the Rodney King verdict came out and the L.A. riots took place. And obviously, if you've watched the news on this Friday and you've seen some of the images coming out of Minneapolis, it's uh, disturbing. And I know Ruben lived through it. So I'm debating or not before I get Ruben on the air whether I'm going to ask him about that or not, just his memories of that time um, and being there. So uh, if I don't ask it, it's because I decided to pull an audible on that one. So... Uh, glad you could join us on this one. Fri- uh, I want to remind you, Tuesday, we have our roundtable about the where sports media will head post-coronavirus. Uh, Tom Shredencheck from Fox 29 is going to join us. Uh, Pat McClune from the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, the executive sports editor. Kind of where the papers stand on how they're going to cover things. And the other part, is, uh, the other person involved is Ed Kratz, uh, my former colleague at the uh, Intelligencer and the Courier Times, who is now the Eagles beat writer for Sports Illustrated. And we'll talk about kind of where they see post-pandemic 
the way we cover sports and how that's going to happen. But when we come back, it's going to be Ruben Amaro Jr. He'll be talking to us about baseball 2020. Will we have it? And where does the sport go from here? That's next. Work of the Beat continues right after this. Looking to reach the sports fans of Philadelphia in a brand new way? This is Kevin Cooney. Each week, the Work of the Beat podcast with Mike Kern and I brings the hottest topics into this sports crazed town with the people and the events that shape the landscape. Now, your business could connect with those people by advertising on the Work of the Beat podcast. Join us at 267-546-7277 or email us at workingthebeat at gmail.com to find out how you can reach out to this growing audience. It's the best sports talk in Philadelphia, and you can be a part of it. That's 267-546-7277 or workingthebeat at gmail.com to join the Working the Beat podcast family. And joining us now... uh the man who defines an organiza- a baseball lifer uh, has been around it from the days when his dad was with the Phillies organization, was a bat boy in the 1980s, was a member of the 93 Phillies, general manager and assistant general manager during the glory run in the last decade into the early portion of this decade. Joining us now, glad to have him. It's Ruben Amaro Jr. Ruben, how are you? Kevin, thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm I'm great. And I should point out my my wife's favorite recurring Goldberg's character uh, and your cameo she loved. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I've got to, when I start working on my uh, working on my uh, my SAG card and uh, my my acting talents. Although although those guys aren't able to do anything either right now. No, nobody <laughs> nobody's doing anything right now. Sadly, sadly, um, sadly. A lot to talk about, and I, I brought this up with you when before we came on watching the events out of Minneapolis last night and I was talking to our buddy Paul Hagan and he brought up the, you know, we were talking about the idea. You guys were in Los Angeles. You remember the 92 Phillies in Los Angeles when the riots broke out following the Rodney King verdict. What was that experience like? And when something like this happens, like happened last night, does it bring back some memories of, of what happened back then? Actually, it does, Kevin. I mean, it was a very scary time. We, I remember finishing a game, and I think that we had to literally pack up our stuff and bolt, um, go by bus. I think we were on I-5, and we had to drive to San Francisco. I don't think that anybody really know what to do, but one of the things we do is basically to get out of L.A. as quickly as possible, and the traffic was awful. It took us hours and hours and hours to get there, but it was like – you know, Beirut at, at, at some point, you know, in the seventies or whatever, it was like a, um, like a war zone there. It was fire and smoke on both sides of the highway. Uh, it was really daunting. It was scary. And uh, I had never been anything around anything like that fire and, uh, smoke. You couldn't see a lot other than like fire and smoke on both sides of the highway. It was really kind of scary. And some of the images last night were similar to what South central look like obviously with the fires and everything at the police station and some of the businesses so uh let me get to the news on baseball uh from today and obviously there's been a lot of talk about the negotiations between the players association and the mlb office um and it seems like they're in a cold freeze right now of you know one side has given their proposal and made it public. The other has made like a counter proposal. Nobody expects either one of them will take it. Um, where do you think this stands? And do you wish this was done in a more private setting than the 
public sniping that's going on? Well, I just think in every negotiation, and I've been through a lot of them on a, a lot of different levels, I think every negotiation that is quite done quietly and not in the public eye, I think it has a much better chance of, of moving forward. I, um, You know, there's a lot of money uh, that, that's being lost. There's a lot of money that could be gained. Uh, money is an issue. I know health is, uh, was paramount and I think that they've worked through some of those, although there, there's some discussion about, you know, making sure that, uh, that they're on the same page there. Um, you know, there's two, they're intelligent people on both sides of the coin here. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that they can, they can come to some compromise. It's a matter of how much money does each, each side want to and feel comfortable enough losing. And, uh, and it's unfortunate in this time, in this day and age that, uh, you know, the discussions become about money, um, particularly within the situation that we're in and it's in this unprecedented time, but you know, that's, you know, that's labor. That's the, that's, you know, that's what negotiations about, I guess. And, uh, and hopefully they can get to some type of compromise where they're neither of them are all that happy, but, uh, they are happy that they, that, that the game is being played. Um, it's a daunting task. I was just talking to my good friend, uh, Gary DeSarcina, who is, uh, was one of my coach mates and teammates way back when with the California angels and then a coaching mate in Boston and New York. Um, you know, it's a daunting task, uh, all the, all the mechanics, uh, that have to go through, you know, a spring training, um, keeping these guys safe, working out, are the, are the players going to be prepared and, and in, in their, um, optimum shape to be able to perform at the optimum level. I just don't know if that's possible in a three week period. It's been almost a full I mean, you start counting the days. Two and a half months. It's almost, it's, it's almost been, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a full offseason almost. And, yeah. and will the players be able to ramp it back up in three weeks? And and so, you know, I know that there's a soft, like, June 1st date that people have talked about, whether or not something can get done so that they can move forward on the spring training, too. Um, and I just hope that uh, – smarter heads will, will prevail here, but it is possible that we don't have baseball. I'm hopeful that we do. I had a 50 or 60% chance. I thought of, you know, yesterday I was thinking about this and talking to some other people, but I don't know if there's going to be a stalemate, uh, better not be stalemate too long because then, then, then we're not going to have baseball until 2021, hopefully. Well, and how much of this is also tied in with, look, they were going to have a battle on the CBA, no matter what in at the end of next year. Yeah, there was issues as far as service time and, and, uh, you know, free agency and all that. How much of that is almost getting put into this mix a little bit right now, you think? I don't think there's any question that there's uh, there are uh, implications and ramifications. And I think everybody's very, very cognizant of that. Well, if they if we concede on this, well, we have to concede on the same thing, uh, you know, come come this next negotiation. Is this a trend line? Is this what's going to happen in our next negotiation? You know, there's all types of things that I'm sure that they're dealing with right now. Um, and, you know, listen, this pandemic is uh, unprecedented, right? right. Kevin Lennon said it's an awful, awful thing. Uh, but it couldn't, as far as Major League Baseball is concerned, it could not have happened at a worse time. We're getting ready to ramp up. Opening day was coming in another week, and boom, all of a sudden there's no baseball. And no sports at all, obviously. And we had to kind of shut down the country. And so, um, I mean, it could not have happened kind of at a worse time. Um, and, uh, 
and this is just unfortunate. I mean, we, this is unprecedented, and it's nothing that's ever happened before. But uh, you know, hopefully, we can get past it, and we can get uh, you know fans to concentrate on just watching baseball and enjoying baseball again sometime soon. And you think it would take at least three weeks to get ramped up if they did start training camp or spring training mid June? I think it's been almost what eighty days already, yeah, um, or something like that um, since since we had a shutdown. So we're talking about you know almost a full off season already, right? So uh, you know if you're talking about a full off season, then you're and your typical spring training's at least four weeks, right? Um, it's really about. I know that they're going to have more players and more pitching available. It's really about the pitchers getting ramped up and getting ready. Um, more than anything else, I think position player wise, those guys can get ready. But it's really about the pitching. Almost always is, as far as the length of the spring training is concerned. But um, you know, and that's the concern. I know you're going to have probably three or four extra pitchers on your staff, um, up to 15 or 16. I'm not sure exactly the rules whether it's going to be a max out of 15 if there's 30 guys who could be playing or on the roster. Um, but I think, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a matter of whether those guys can get their arms ready. And I think it's got to be at least three weeks before we can really think that these guys can can be available. I, I would not expect anybody to be going more than five or six innings as a starter, uh, even with the three weeks. Um, I just don't know if it's enough time to get those guys ramped up to, to be able to pitch beyond that that level. And the other complicating factor is you're going to have a taxi squad, but you're not going to have minor leagues to dip into either. I mean, you're going to have maybe 20 to 25 players you'll keep around, but you're not going to have anybody in the minors who you could surge forward. You know, you've had, you had some guys in your years as GM that kind of forced themselves into an equation by performing well at the minors. You're not going to have that this year. No question. I mean, you're going to have to rely on those taxi squad guys. Uh, I guess the rule is going to be just that, you know, you can have 20 or 25, whatever the number is, I guess it's 50 total 30 on the active roster, maybe 20 taxi squad guys and you know they're going to be and, and you know the, the other difficulty is where are they going to work out are they going to work out in their cities uh in their pro- cities proper are they going to travel with their teams are they not are they going to um be working out in their spring training sites or somewhere close mm-hmm. what kind of facilities are they going to be able to utilize um there's a concern about some of the coaches and some of the instructors are going to have to be there and and whether or not they have pre-existing issues and and uh, and health issues, and how are they going to be monitored when they go in and out of the facilities, and uh, it, you know, there's a whole slew of very daunting things that have to be dealt with. Um, and again, you know, this is this is unprecedented stuff. We're still learning more about the virus, right? We're still learning about whether how it can be transmitted. The fact that people are asymptomatic who are passing it on. I mean, it's all types of stuff that. That we're still learning about the uh, the virus and the pandemic, and and uh, you know it's a, it's not an easy task for anybody, and uh, and there's a lot of complications associated with it, and, and which which makes it even more difficult. But uh, but you hope that these guys feel pressure enough and understand the importance enough for the fans and for and for our uh, industry to be able to try to get something done. Would you have felt comfortable playing? I mean, I probably would have, Kevin, but, um, you know, uh, my, my mindset was probably a lot different than from some other guys' mindset. I mean, I, always, I, wasn't, I wasn't talented enough to be like a star by any stretch of the imagination, and so right. it's different. And, uh, and I was generally single for most of my career, and so it wasn't um, an issue to have 
you know, be worried about having a, you know, having a wife and, you know, my wife being pregnant. I mean, and that, that kind of stuff that happened at the end of my, at the end of my last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but the reality was I didn't have to deal with that as much as maybe as other issues that the other, other guys are going to have to deal with. And, uh, you know, and, and then there's the money issue. You're asking Mike Trout, uh, under the, under the one proposal to, to play for five or $6 million. I think that's, I don't think that that's a real reasonable thought process. And I just don't, I just can't see that happening. I mean, I love Mike Trout and, uh, but I wouldn't blame him if he's not playing for that kind of money. And, and, uh, I, I think there's other ways to be able to try to skin the cat. I think I know it's a first salvo, but um, but I'm hopeful that they can uh, push this thing along quickly. Ruben Amaro joins us. Ruben, obviously today is a big anniversary, the 10 year anniversary of the um, uh, of the perfect game by Roy Halladay down in Miami. I, I heard you telling James Seltzer and um, uh, uh, Jack Fritz on the uh, WIP podcast about you being in the building that night and, and going into the scout seats. Correct. Right. Yeah. I was in, the, in the beginning of the game, I was up, upstairs probably watching the game with the Greg Castriato or somebody upstairs. Oh, no, it was actually uh, Kevin Gregg probably up there in the uh, yeah. in the booth. I used to say up there in the booth sometimes with them. Um, and then I think around the third or fourth inning, um, I went down to to, uh, to watch the game with my uh, my half brother, Ruben Andres, uh, who's younger mm-hmm. uh, from my dad's second marriage. Uh, and uh, we sat there and just watched the game from the scout seats. And then when the game got to the fifth or sixth inning, man, it just got awfully quiet. You know, we're we're both two uh, two guys who like to jabber, and uh, but we didn't. There was not a peep from like the sixth inning on, man. We could not, we couldn't breathe, and we didn't talk, particularly in the last couple of innings. He was he was so focused every night. It seemed like I mean, yeah, when when we covered him, when you when you dealt with him, like. Did, were there some like we knew not to go up to him even a day or two ahead of his start. That was just the way he was. He was in mode to get ready for his next performance. Was it kind of the same way for everybody in, on the club at that point as well? I think so. I think people understood what his habits were and what was important to him, and particularly on game day, it just didn't really bother him. It just wasn't something, you know, this is Roy's day. This is as important a day for him as you could possibly imagine. He was super accountable, as we've talked about, um, as anybody. And he wanted to make sure that he had absolutely no distractions in his concentration and preparedness. So, um, I mean, I would not go near him. Uh, <laughs> I'd pop down from the, to the clubhouse from time to time, try not to spend too much time there, probably sometimes too much. But, um, but uh, you know, you'd stay away from him. But he was, you know, besides that, he was – you know, besides those days, I mean, he was very cordial and open to talking and he was a quiet guy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but he was always very cordial and very open and very, um, affable and, and, uh, you know, not afraid to talk to me. So I, I, I enjoyed that. Well, I enjoyed that. And, and that's one of the things I was transitioning to. Obviously, Brandy Halliday talked a lot for Todd Zalecki's book. There's the ESPN, uh, story that came out tonight or that's coming out tonight about his struggles with different things, especially at the end of his career and in post life. How much of a surprise was that to you? Some of the stuff that was going on or that has been detailed in the last few days. Well, the one thing that I did know about Roy during the, during his tenure with us was that he did suffer some, from some anxieties as far as just being around people. Um, mm-hmm. He, uh, you know, 
know, he liked to keep to himself. I think that's one of the reasons why he liked fishing. I think it's the reason why he liked flying. I mean, he, he liked to do things on his own. He was a good teammate. But um, but I think he felt uncomfortable in, like, spaces when he had to be around a ton of people. And, and, and I knew a little bit about some of those anxieties. I did not know that he had had some struggle, personal struggles, until much, much later um, and finding out some of the stuff that happened after the hearings, you know, some of the stuff after the accident. But, um, uh, you know, he was so... Uh, intense in his work ethic and his expectations. And then having read Todd Zalecki's book about Doc and, uh, and learning a little bit more about him and how he grew up and what was important to him. I can see, you know, and listen, I've been through it myself where um, you, when you create an expectation for yourself, you're type A, whatever, however you want to describe what a type A is. But when you have an expectation of yourself, there's some anxiety that's associated with that. And I'm sure he was dealing with that on a, on a pretty uh, regular basis. Um, I did not know much about it, but, uh, but I heard some rumors about it. And then um, I, I can't say anything negative about Doc just because um, there's, to me, there's nothing negative to say. The man... You know, whether or not he was flawed or not flawed, I know that um, what kind of person he was. I know what his intentions were. I know what his accountability was. And as a teammate, as a person and as a, you know, someone I got a chance to work with and admire, watch and admire his work. I mean, I can't I can't say enough positive things about the man. And what amazes me is that anxiety. And we've seen other players have anxiety issues and it literally makes them weak on the field. He was able to push through all that. I mean, you know, in 2010, to, to make your first playoff start, which had to be, you know, you have to be nervous before any start, but especially at your first playoff start, having the expectations he had that year and be able to do what he did against the Reds that night. It's remarkable when you consider now the condition he had, isn't it? I think I think the way you describe it is perfect. It's, it is remarkable. When you think about the anxiety associated with that, he never pitched in a playoff game. All he wanted to do is do that. <laughs> and that was the reason why he wanted to come to Philadelphia because he knew that was a really good chance to, uh, to be able to do that, particularly in our era with the club that we had. Um, and, um, and for him to perform at that level, with that level of intensity, with that level of pressure, um, I mean, it's obvious that what he, the work that he did with Harvey Dorfman and the, um, you know, the preparedness and all the things that led up to that. I mean, that's what made him tick. That's what made him, you know, Doc uh, Halliday. I mean, he, um, he bought into those things. Um, and the beauty of that was, I think he really, he really felt like he could impact young players with that same information. And that was really something he wanted to do post uh, post career. And we had talked about this. I talked to, um, to, to to Doc, and I basically told him, "Listen, you, when any, any if I have a job here in Philadelphia, you'll have a job. Uh, you'll have a job with us." Because I knew that he wanted to try to impact some of our guys. I know that you know <clears throat> he ended up helping a lot bunch of my guys in in a, in a number of different ways. Um, as a mentor and helping out, just being around, I just asked him just be around, be around our pitchers because anything, even by osmosis, you can learn from, from, from doc. And, uh, and he was really willing to do that. I know he ended up doing work in it more, a little bit more formally once I was gone, right. which was great, which is wonderful that he had an opportunity to do that. And he was, 
uh, and, and he he was involved in doing that. It was a little bit of a battle actually between the Toronto Blue Jays and and the Phillies because I think he was kind of torn because both organizations really wanted him <laughs> to uh, to work for him. I think in some regards, I think he worked with both of them. So, um, but uh, but he wanted to impart that knowledge. He really wanted to become you know that guy. I thought, and 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 it's it is I'm assured that he was a guy that was an outstanding coach in that regard, because I know how important it was uh, to him to be a good coach and to be a good mentor. Ruben Amaro joins us. Ruben, I, everybody and their brother asked you about the holiday and the lead trade. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get you off the hook on that one. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I view your, uh, you know, it's strange looking now through the prism of time. I'm not sure you got the credit you deserved for the way the organization was from the time really going up with Ed Wade as an assistant GM all the way to, you know, that whole era because of the moves that you made. Do you think now you've been gone five years? Do you think now you're getting a little better retrospect from a lot of people than you did maybe when your time here ended in 15 uh, I, I, I don't know. You have to probably have to ask the fans that. I mean, listen, I, I, I've always felt very proud of the uh, the things and the things that I've contributed to the organization. I was proud to work for Ed Wade, who did a heck of a job and put kind of things in motion for the organization. Mike Arbuckle did a phenomenal job, and uh, and, and he was a, one of the assistant GMs as well that uh, had a lot to do with you know our success. I mean, all of us deserve, I guess – some credit for the things that we did, but, um, Hey, listen, baseball is a, uh, it's a difficult sport. It's a difficult, any major sport, you know, there's cyclical, uh, processes here. Um, we knew that there was going to be some sort of cliff that we're going to have to drop off of. David Montgomery and I talked about that all the time. Um, but it was a matter of, you know, how, how can we, you know, flatten the curve, so to speak, right? In in today's terms, and uh, and and you know, I was just hopeful that I'd be able to get a chance to do that because you know, I, was, I was part of that when Ed, you know, embarked on you know trying to do what we what we ended up eventually doing with his help. Um, and then I learned a lot from Pat Gillick, who you know gave me a lot of perspective <clears throat> on on the on the little things and the, the importance of the little things that can create an, a winning atmosphere. Um, and a winning culture. And so, uh, listen, I, I, you know, for fans will, fans will have their own opinions about stuff. I'm very proud of the things that we did um, to be a part of and be in the middle of probably the best uh, era in, in our uh, franchise. I mean, no disrespect to Paul Owens and Dallas Green during the late 70s and early 80s. I think we can match up against those guys as far as the amount of talent and the amount of success that we had and, and, uh, and shoot, you know, being a part of that makes me, makes me feel good about it. And, uh, I don't know if I'll get a chance to ever do that again. I believe that I have the skill and the ability to do that, but, uh, you know, that's not really my call, but, um, but I, I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I was involved pretty intimately in a lot of the decisions that were made. You, you do want to be a general manager again? I mean, I, I've thought about a lot of different things. I mean, people ask me all the time, do you want to be a GM again? Do you want to be a, you know, I, at, at one point I wanted to be a manager because that's one, one of the reasons why I went back down on the field as a coach. I like to do it all. 
I mean, mm-hmm. I like I like to be able to do it all. I'd love to get an opportunity to be a manager. I'd love to get another opportunity to be a GM again. I don't. Uh, I just want to work in baseball. I enjoy working in baseball. I think I'll have an. Hopefully, I'll get an opportunity to do that again. I think that I've got a lot to to offer, and um, that'll be up to the the powers that be. But um, but I'm uh, right now. I'm you know working through like everybody else, working yeah. through this pandemic, and hopeful that uh, we get out to the uh, on the other side in a healthy and, and a productive way. You mentioned about flattening the curve. Um, obviously, when you lost to the Cardinals in eleven. You had you had some decisions to make because Howard goes down and you had signed him to the contract, but Howard goes down and, and it looked really bad at that point. Jimmy, I believe Rollins was due up for a contract that off season. Am I, Correct. Uh, um, you had Pence for you had just gotten Pence. Yeah, Victorino due up a year. Kind of that off season. How difficult was that? Because you know you're getting older. You know, the you had Don Brown in the farm system and you're trying to, I guess, fit a place for him, but you're trying to keep it together and, and patch it. But you also know that the time's running short, correct? Yeah. You know, we lost Chase Utley that with his knees. And so when we had the start 12, Howard, right. I mean, yeah. You know, we, we had all types of things. We, and we lose those three players. And then later on we lost Cliff, um, you know, you lose that, that quality of player. Now you're you're relying on Shane Victorino and uh, and Hunter Pence to kind of carry the load when we're missing you know, two guys in the middle and our number one starter uh, is not healthy. Um, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on the team. You know, we, we signed Papelbon because we wanted to. We thought that that was he was the best closer at the time, which he was, and he pitched extraordinarily well for us. Um, I think he's our all-time sage leader in, in our franchise. And so, I mean, listen, he pitched very, very well. It wasn't, you know, as it turns out, it wasn't the greatest sign just because we didn't have enough team to support him. Um, and uh, we just weren't a good enough club. Now, the other part of this, Kevin, that a lot of people don't know is we're in the middle of a negotiation with Comcast to try to for the <laughs> to TV try to deal. do a pretty, pretty, pretty big TV deal. And right. I think it was a little difficult message to send to not sign back guys like Jimmy Rollins and Chooch, who, you know, we probably ended up signing those guys to deals that were maybe a little bit too long. I mean, they were starting to get older. The production was going to fall off a little bit. And, uh, but we tried, uh, tried as we might, was to try to, and we kept, you know, signed, had signed uh, Cole to that long-term deal mm-hmm. to try to keep him on for, you know, knowing that pitching was one of the most important things to try to continue to to be a competitive and a championship caliber team, not just competitive but a contending team. Um, but we just couldn't keep all the pieces together, and guys got hurt, and they got less productive, and they got older, and they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't able to perform at their at their optimum levels, but. There's a lot of other deciding factors that were going on uh, behind the scenes as far as those deals are concerned. Now, we, we struggled quite a bit with the re-signing of, of Jimmy Rollins. Right. Uh, he insisted on three years. Uh, to be frank with you, I, I, I only didn't want to go past two years. Um, and for us to be able to get the deal done, I think, you know, it's going to take three years. we got three years. I mean, he had a chance to go to Milwaukee. I don't know. Ultimately, you have to ask Jimmy whether he would take in a two-year deal uh, rather than go to Milwaukee for three but um, but we kept him. Uh, we had Freddie Galvis, who could have probably taken over at that time. We could have started trying to get a little bit younger. But listen, we were trying to we were trying to flatten the curve and continue to play, you know, good baseball and contend. And we had you know committed to a couple of different guys. And so 
Well, and, um, and that's, I guess, where the question I was going is with, with, or the way I was trying to phrase the question, I know I didn't do it right, but it's tough when you have an era and the success you have and the players you have, and they were mostly homegrown, to know to when to kind of pull the cord, isn't it, at that point? How well, tough yeah, is that? Not only that, I mean, one of the things, one of the goals was when we talked with, uh, when, when, when uh, Ed, Ed, Ed Wade and I talked, and, and he, you know, the premise was, listen, let's get good and stay good, and let's do that with our own homegrown players. And um, at some point, some of those homegrown players who were arguably the best players at their positions ever, when mm-hmm. you start talking about homegrown players with the Phillies, you've got Howard, Utley, and Rollins, and they're the three best players at their position ever. You know, what are you going to replace them with? Um, and when you're not able to draft high, when you're drafting late, uh, we're signing players – we're not able to draft, uh, you know, the quality that that, that you might might want to have. Um, I think that uh, Sal Augusta and I was doing a really nice job of, you know, continuing to filter in some some pretty good quality young players, um, Latin American players. Mm-hmm. But you just don't give an op- get an opportunity under this, you know, under under this um, the, the way that it's structured to continue to bring talent into our organization one of the reasons why we made that cliff lee trade is to try to bring talent back in our organization somehow and and uh then we started you know probably a couple of years too late um because we had some loyalty to some of these players to uh to start trading some of them away you know bringing in the zach Eflins of the world and uh and making the you know making the hamels deal i think that we probably you know i mean in retrospect maybe we should have done it two years early rather than two years too late. So, um, but, uh, but it's a hard, it's a hard sell. You don't want to do that in Philadelphia. My, I always grew up in the belief that my job as a GM is to put a winning product on the field and to win world championships, not to just, not to just compete, but to contend and to win. And, uh, and there's a cost to that. So, uh, I wish I went an opportunity that you know, my, my biggest uh, thing about, you know, my tenure was not that I got let go, but that I didn't, didn't get an opportunity to try to turn it around uh, because I had been through rebuilds, so to speak with Ed and, and others. And I really felt like I uh, was going to be able to do that. And I didn't really get a chance to, to, to turn it all the way around. Were you surprised when it happened? I was not. I was not. No, I mean, listen, uh, disappointed, yes, obviously. Right. Uh, but not surprised. I mean, listen, I understand. I, I, I get it. I don't, uh, I don't begrudge the decision. I just dis- disappointed in it because I know, um, with my baseball acumen and the things that I know about the game that, uh, that I could have brought this, uh, franchise back quickly. Um, we have Victorino on a couple weeks ago and he was talking about the fact that his regret is he felt like, you guys probably should have had at least one more, maybe two more rings. And he talked about 09 is his biggest disappointment. Um, when you look back, is there one, 11's the obvious one because of the way it ended and, and all that, but you played a really good Cardinals team. Is there one of those years you went, man, that was our year and it got away from us? Well, in, in 09, we, we played a hell of a, we played a hell of a Yankees team. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, it was a very, very good club. Um, I thought that we had a chance to beat them. Um, I thought we had the, 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 the right mix. I thought in 10, we had a better club than everybody. Um, I, I, I believe that in my heart of hearts, 
of the teams that uh, that won seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven, I in my heart of hearts, I believe the ten and eleven, uh, ten and eleven clubs were maybe the best clubs in baseball, uh, arguably, and we just didn't play the kind of baseball we needed to play to uh, to to win championships. Um, uh, I thought, frankly, in '08 the Boston Red Sox were, were the best ball club and they got beat by Tampa Bay Tampa in the Bay. playoffs. And, and then we were very, very fortunate to have that, have that happen. We ended up playing a very, very young team in the world series. And, and, uh, and listen, it was a very good team. It was a great year and, and some things happened for a reason. Um, but as far as just pure talent, I think the nine, 10, 11 teams were, were even better. 10 may have been the one with the best balance between your, your lineup and your pitching staff right. at that point, because you had Oswald come in, and Hamels and Halliday obviously were, were pitching lights out. Correct. Um, is there one move you regret? Well, probably a bunch of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I'm uh, pretty proud of the record generally, but, um, you know, not not keeping Cliff and, and, uh, and trading him for, you know, basically to try to bring back more talent. And not just that. I mean, the doubly, we probably should have taken a little bit more time to to get the right deal with players who are closer than major leagues. We got three very, very good young prospects who didn't unfortunately pan out. J.C. Right. Uh, Ramirez ended up pitching some in the big leagues, but um, and uh, Felipe Mont actually is in spring training with the Toronto Blue Jays again. But um, but obviously those guys in, in Gillies did not pan out, so they didn't really pan out the way we would have hoped. Um, and had we taken a little bit more time to get a better deal and uh, open things up a little bit more problem with it was that by the time we were getting that deal done um, and the kind of had a semi mandate to try to move hit, uh, clip to get talent back, um, you know, we, um, we didn't really want the fans to, to think that we were going to have this powerhouse, you know, uh, rotation with those two guys at the top of the ticket with, with Cole. So, right. you know, so we ended up, uh, so we ended up kind of maybe doing it a little more hastily than, than, than we would have hoped and, uh, didn't really make the decisions that we probably should have made. But listen, in retrospect, I mean, I understand the process. I understand why, uh, David Montgomery and I, we, you know, one of the reasons why we decided to do that, we just had to try to replenish our system. Um, I just wish we had done it at a little bit better timeline um, and uh, made a little bit better decisions with those. Is there a, I, I would assume the holiday move is the one you're most proud of though. Correct. Uh, or, to, yeah, or, or is it the first lead? You know, I will tell you that the first and second lead deals were pretty good ones too. When we ended <laughs> up, you know, when we ended up doing under the radar, I mean uh, the, the machinations and the things that happened prior to getting Cliff Lee that second time in that deal um, and kind of, grabbing them from out uh, underneath uh, some teams' noses there. I guess it was Texas and, and New York that were running on them. Mm-hmm. Um, for us to have done that in such a stealth manner, I thought that was extraordinary. That was fun for me. Um, surprised you know, the hell out of us. Clip, <laughs> right. Uh, I think it surprised a lot of people. So, um, And you know what? I, I have a lot of gratitude to, the, uh, to our ownership group. You know, they take a lot of heat. And for years took a lot of heat for not, you know, being too cheap and being too this and too that and whatever. And, you know, the mid market and all that BS. But the reality of it is 
that uh, they supported us in a great, great way. And David Montgomery was a great leader. And uh, I don't have any regrets about that. They were, you know, I didn't like being fired, but they did treat me very well, my family. And, and, uh, and they treated the city really well by giving them the resource, giving us the resources to try to do things we needed to do. When, uh, let me throw two names at you. And these are people you worked with directly. Uh, Charlie Manuel and Terry Francona. Talk about what they brought to the to the table. I think Terry was a uh, at the time it was a great learning experience for him. I played obviously played for Tito, right? Great person, good good man. Uh, learned a lot from being in this marketplace. Uh, you know, obviously he wasn't supported with a very good team. I mean, poor guy had to have me on his roster. So, <laughs> um, and I think. I think uh, he learned a lot from being here. I think he would tell you that. I know it was difficult for him, but it was a great learning process for him. Um, as a person now, and having gotten to know him more and more over the years, I mean, he's just fantastic. He's one of the better managers in the game, and it's hard to imagine a better one. Hall, um, Hall of Famer? I would think so. Why not? Why shouldn't he be? Uh, he's won championships. He's, uh, he's yeah. uh, done an extraordinary job in Cleveland. I mean, shoot. Yeah. He, he, he certainly should be under consideration. I don't know what a, what what his what what his record is and complete his complete record, but I think the story is still being written for him. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as Charlie is concerned, I mean, to me, uh, as good a players manager as it could be, out um, to another one of my I guess my biggest regrets is I probably should have waited to the end of the year to to make, you know for us to make that move for him to to. Uh, uh, for us to, to make that move to have him uh, be replaced by uh, Sandberg, I think, um, you know, it's a very, very difficult move for us. I mm-hmm. think it was the right thing for him. I don't know. We probably should have waited to the end of the year to do it. That was one of the things I guess I regret as well. Um, and I've talked to him about that uh, personally because he was such a good person, great coach, great hitting coach, great person, sly like a fox. Uh, a lot smarter than people maybe perceived him to be. Great baseball man. Loved his players. Um, players loved playing for him. And uh, I consider him a great friend. I'm glad he's still associated with the Phillies. It's one of the things that I wanted to make sure would happen. Um, I was glad to be part of the process when we brought Brent Jim Tomey in to have him be part of this. You know, mm-hmm. have him be part of the organization when Jim came in. And uh, Ed did a great job of, of making that happen um, as one of our advisors. Yep. Um, just a good person, good friend. And uh, he's, had a, he's had a heck of a career. I, I have to admit, as a beat writer, one of the best things you can – the one thing you can ask for a general manager is for honesty and for them to call you back if, they, if you give them a call. And, and I got to tell people, Ruben is the best at that. Whenever I ever had a question, <laughs> Ruben – Ruben would call. I know we can be a pain in the ass at times as reporters, but uh, <laughs> Ruben is as good a guy as there is. And Rube, I, I, I thank you for doing this and uh, ho- best wishes to you and the family. And I hope we get to see each other during the, during the season at some point. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. It's great talking to you. Good luck with your endeavors. And uh, I hope things go well for you, man. Be safe. Thanks, Ruben. Ruben tomorrow joins us. We'll be back right after this. Looking to reach the sports fans of Philadelphia in a brand new way? This is Kevin Cooney. Each week, 
The Working to Be podcast with Mike Kern and I brings the hottest topics into this sports crazed town with the people and the events that shape the landscape. Now, your business could connect with those people by advertising on the Working to Be podcast. Join us at 267-546-7277 or email us at workingthebeat at gmail.com to find out how you can reach out to this growing audience. It's the best sports talk in Philadelphia, and you can be a part of it. That's 267-546-7277 or workingthebeat at gmail.com to join the Working the Beat podcast family. Our thanks again to Ruben Amaro Jr. for joining us on a wide variety of topics, mainly uh, about his tenure as general manager, but that always brings up the Roy Halladay situation. And Roy, obviously, 10 years ago tonight, if you were unaware, pitched a perfect game in Miami, the 20th perfect game in Major League history. And joining us now, somebody who was there that evening, uh, from at that time, the Delco Times, then went on to the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philly Voice. Now with the Sun newspapers, correct, uh, Ryan? Philly Daily News. He was so in the, the Daily News for crying yeah. out loud. <laughs> I'm sorry. Jesus I'm Christ sorry. My God, you're in the journalism business. You got to be accurate with your information. See, I just link all the Daily News and Inquirer guys now together. Because no, it's just the way it is. No, that was like a 1918 thing. I mean, 20, I mean 2018. I was going to say, if it's a 1918 thing, Mike, no, then... Don't, don't, then we have another don't, pandemic to worry about. That's right. Don't, don't, yeah, don't. <laughs> Ryan, how are you? I'm okay. How are you guys? I'm good. Um, hey, Ryan, how's that pizza place you took us to doing? Is that <laughs> not open right now? No, they're crushing it, actually. They have a... They have it down to a perfect science. They, um, it's contactless. You, um, you pay on Venmo, and you okay. drive up, and they put the pizza in your backseat. Wow. Yeah, it's great. And it's it's holy tomato, right? Yep, holy tomato and blackwood. Yeah, they're great. And that was good. Yeah, I got, I got. You know, it's funny. There's a, a side. Some places I know. Look, most places aren't doing, you, you know, a, a fraction of what they do. I, I get yeah. it. Some places. I think, like, I was up Chick-fil-A today with my wife. I mean, you go up there at lunchtime, there's 35 cars in line. Yeah. No, um, that's what the pizza place, I actually interviewed them, uh, like, three weeks ago for a story I wrote about, like, how technology has made getting by actually fairly easy. You know, if this would if this pandemic happened 15 years ago, oh yeah, been struggling a lot more. But, but yeah, they're actually, they're doing really well business-wise because, yeah, they, they have it down really well and. I think people like to go out just to go and pick up a pizza just to get out of the house. Yeah, good for them. Good for the ones that have, you know, and I know that doesn't help all the ones that they can't. I, I get it. I, I, you know, but some places, I mean, God, they, they just seem like they're really doing well. And, you know, thank God some people are doing well. Yeah. yeah. I should point out, actually, and Ryan will be interested in this. You know Foley's up in New York? Yeah. Closed. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. They actually closed. Huh? They closed for good today. Yeah, that's rough. That's rough. Uh, it's a what, what was Foley's? Foley's was at thirty third. It's right near the right near the Garden, but it's a Irish bar that had a ton of baseball memorabilia, like uh, everywhere. We, we never went there, right? We never went there. No. Okay. Okay. No, because we went in March, and nobody went. Nobody ever went out in March. So. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, Ryan, you were there ten years ago tonight. Um, what's your memories of the perfect game? Yeah, um, 
I'm just, I'm kind of grateful I was there. You, and even I was considering this today, how the media world has changed. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. And I think there were only three or four of us there. It was uh, Salisbury who was there with Comcast. Uh, Martin Frank was actually there for Wilmington. And Mac Yelp was there for the Inquirer. And me. And that was it. Yeah, Zalecki wasn't there. Zalecki had that weekend off, I think, because it was Memorial yeah, Day weekend. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah, Alden Gonzalez actually covered for MLB.com. Um, Who was there for the Daily News, Ryan? Uh, it was a Saturday, so Murphy wasn't at the ballpark. Oh! <laughs> Stunner! Oh. <laughs> I forgot that was a Saturday night game. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's all right. Um, I mean, I'm grateful because if I was at the Daily News, maybe the same thing would happen to me. Sure, uh, sure. But, uh, but, yeah, but, you know... Um, but yeah, not a whole lot's changed. But but yeah, my, when I joined the beat in 2008, not to get on a tangent, you know, the Atlantic City Press, the Burlington County Times, um, not Burlington County Times, Bucks. Bucks County Curry Times, um, the Allentown Morning Call, uh, the Camden Courier Post. There were probably four or five more outlets at least traveling with the team. So even by 2010, that started to slim down. But yeah, my memories of that night was, I don't know, it was kind of stressful. When you're writing about, you know, history like that, you don't want to screw it up, right? And, and I, you know, I also remember that there were more people in that ballpark than normal because it was a Saturday night, and the Marlins, like a lot of these, you know, small-time ta- small baseball, uh, Major League Baseball towns, had a concert that night. And so we were all trying to write about this historic moment in baseball history while this Latin concert was playing out after the game. Um, so I remember it being a little hectic, but it was also fun. Um, I remember, you know, sitting in the press box and, you know, we had the, the Flyers game on TV because it was game one of the uh, Stanley Cup finals against the Blackhawks. And, you know, I grew up a Flyers fan, so I was interested in that game. Obviously, any time Halliday pitched, it was obviously interesting too. But the more innings that went by, the less interested I was in that hockey game. And probably by the fifth inning, sixth inning, I wasn't even watching the hockey game anymore. Um, so, yeah, it was it was – I'm grateful to have covered it. Um, it was it was a fun event, and he was he was just a joy to watch. I feel like anytime he pitched, it was it was an event. Kind of like how football is separated by baseball because football it's easy to pay attention to because every football game is an event, mm-hmm. so everybody can pay attention. And that's why you know the Eagles are more popular than the Phillies because it's event. It's an event. I feel like when Halliday pitched, that's how the Phillies were. It was an event. Yep. Ryan, do you remember? I, I seem to remember that get, game getting over relatively quickly compared to most games today. Did you have a lot of time to write that, or was that one of those deals where you had like 15, 20, 30 minutes? Yeah, I mean, the beauty of a well pitched game, which is, you know, like a dinosaur in, in baseball anymore, uh, when, you know, when, when we allow a starting pitcher to go beyond the sixth inning, oh my goodness. Um, the beauty of complete game is that generally. They're a lot quicker because you don't have pitching changes and you have someone that's setting the tone for the game. And if he's going nine innings, he's probably pitching really well. So, yeah, I don't remember the time of game. It was probably around two hours and 12, 18 minutes, somewhere in that range. So, yeah, I think we had a, a decent amount of time to write it. Um, it. It certainly wasn't, you know, I only had 20 minutes of deadline, anything like that. That said, I think we did have to wait a little bit for Halliday because we had a little bit, you know, go through his postgame stuff a little bit. Um, I remember sitting in the, the, you know, the Marlins made like a makeshift press conference room um, in that uh, crappy old stadium that they played in in Miami Gardens. And we had to wait a little bit for him. 
So, yeah, we, but I think I still had a decent amount of time to write it. I mean, I think baseball is always tough because the games are generally longer than every other sport, and they almost all start after 7 p.m. Uh, so, yeah, but it wasn't too, too bad. It wasn't, you know, one of the tougher deadlines stories I had to write. And I think the one thing, Ryan, looking back, is the fact that he was able to do that and then in October, and we just talked about this with Ruben, the fact that now that you're finding out his major anxiety issues yeah, and that he was able to do what he did, given all the stuff now that's obviously been brought up by, by Todd Zalecki's book, um, everything that's been kind of happened post the incident with uh, you know, the airplane a couple years ago, and now finding out from this ESPN story about how much of the anxiety issues he had, it's remarkable he was able to function at the level he was. Well, I think I think if, you know you're talking about a different time and place too. I mean, then he he's my age, so at that point he was 33 years old and still at the height of his powers. Um, remember, he had another really good season after that with the Phillies. Yeah. So he wasn't he, his body hadn't started breaking down yet. He he hadn't. Um, you know, granted there may have been some anxiety there and, and some of that stuff, but the other things weren't weren't an issue yet. The painkillers, none of that came into effect until. Uh, the last year or so with his abilities, uh, you know, according to, to these reports. So, you know, at that point, he was still a a machine. Um, and, you know, and I hate to say a machine because, yeah, he is, there's still a person in there with, you know, the same anxieties and feelings that we all deal with. But, I mean, he was a professional and to, to a T in terms of the preparation that he did, um, you know, the homework, the, the, the keeping the notebooks, uh, the physical preparation. You know, I remember one time someone argued with me that a pitcher shouldn't be eligible for an MVP because, you know, they only, uh, take, they only take part in, you know, game once every five days. And I wanted to be like, you know what? You should go what? You should go to the ballpark every day like I do and watch Roy Halladay. You want to tell me that he's not having, you know, not, not working on those other days and also not having an effect on those other days because every time he went out, he was given the bullpen a rest the next day and the day before he pitched. So, yeah, I mean, he was just, yeah, granted everything that's happened is tragic. I mean, he died at age 40. Awful. Just, just really terrible. Um, you know, left behind a young family. Um, all that is terrible. But, you know, the one thing that I think people do need to still appreciate, and you know, I think we focused on the end and how he died and all the stuff that's coming out now, but I think we need to appreciate the first, you know, appreciate his life. Yeah. And what made him famous? What made him famous was the fact that he was a top-tier prospect who fell from grace and built himself back up through, you know, sheer will, uh, fortitude, and and through sports psychology. And the sad thing was, is he wanted to to pay that forward, and he wanted to get into sports psychology, and he was getting into that with the Phillies toward the end of his career, or I'm sorry, toward the end of his life. Um, but yeah, that night. You know, that was just the culmination of everything that he had done in the game. And I think I read a quote from Jamie Moyer uh, the other day in one of the remembered stories, or it was actually from Cole Hamels. Cole Hamels said that Jamie Moyer said, Cole, this is why you take notebooks. This is why we, we do all the homework, because special moments like this can happen if you put the work in. Yeah, to, to, to either of you guys, because you both covered him, um, does what we found out about him later – Change the way you look at it. Like, to me, from afar, it just makes me think he was human. You know, we see this happen to people all the time, that he had demons that, 
you know, for whatever reason, it maybe wasn't his fault or whatever. But does it change the way you guys view him in retrospect, or is it just like another layer of him? Ryan, go ahead. Um, I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, personally, and I wrote this uh, on the day he died, I, I was a huge Roy Holiday fan before I was a baseball writer. So going back to when I was in grad school and started my first fantasy baseball team, this is like 21 years ago or so, I think it was the summer of 2000. So yeah, 20 years ago this summer. Um, that I, you know, became a Roy Halladay fan. He just got in the big leagues, um, came one out away from throwing a no-hitter, his second career start. Uh, so I was always a fan of his, and I guess because I saw him every day, I think it would be different from a fan that maybe didn't have the interaction with him. Mm-hmm. But when you see this guy every day in a clubhouse, you see anybody every day in a clubhouse, you see that they're not just, you know, a superstar athlete. You see that they're, they're human beings, too, and, and you have regular conversations with them. Um, but sure, like, this does add a different layer. Um, all the struggles that he did have in, in his, uh, you know, his life, particularly in the last four or five years of his life, um, yeah, it does. It, 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 it kind of peels back another layer on the totality of Roy Halladay. But like I said, I mean, we're all vulnerable. We all have imperfections. Um, this was a guy that I think his, his – um, his widow said it best in, in Selecki's book, is that, you know, Roy did everything to the nth degree. So he failed to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. He succeeded to the, you know, the nth degree. And unfortunately, you know, the last few years of his life were like that too, where um, his struggles were real and they were, they were severe. And it seemed like he was coming out of them. And that, that's the sad thing. It seemed like he was ready to start the third act of his life and it got cut short. And I'll admit, you know, Ryan was closer because Ryan traveled a lot more than I did. Um, look, we also, in, in, in baseball, more than any other sport, you get to know the players because you're around them for so long. And you're around them every day. And you're around them through from February to October. And... There are some who are very regimented, and Halliday was regimented. You didn't go up to him the day before he t- pitched. Uh, you know, he had his approach, and you knew when you were going to talk to him. And that wasn't him being mean. That was him being prepared. That was him being focused and getting in the spot he needed to get to to perform. And we dealt with other pitchers on that same staff who, quite frankly, were jerks. And they were doing it out of a place of, of, of not being prepared. They were doing it out of a place of being mean, just being idiots. And so whenever you didn't need Halliday for something, Halliday was always very thorough with his answers. I mean, you ask him a post-game question about a sequence of pitches, and Ryan will tell you. He was unbelievable. Yeah, you'll get a three-minute answer with, you know, everything broken down. I mean, th- this guy was methodical. And, and yeah, you're, you're right. They were, the answers were always thoughtful. Um, you know, he was just a professional. And right. Not, not to cut you off, but, yeah, maybe he wasn't, you know, as uh, – he didn't have the gift of the gab or whatever. I, I don't want to say he wasn't media-friendly because you're right. Kind of like a Chase Utley or a Raul Banez, every minute of this guy's day was accounted for. He right. had he had to be in the video room at this time. He had to be in the weight room at this time. He had to go for a run in this time. 
And so if you really needed him, you know, you could say, hey, today's not great, but maybe tomorrow at 4.15, whatever. Right. And, um, and you better have your stuff lined up. You better yeah. know what you're talking about and everything. And you looked and, oh, my God, it's Roy Halladay. You know, so you didn't want to waste his time. Utley was the same way. You know, Chase would give you time. You just had to work with him a little bit on the schedule. You know, and deep down, I thought he was a decent man. I, I ran into him a couple times, either at spring training, when he came back and did some special instruction, or he came back to the ballpark. Remember, they retired his number? Or not retired his number. They uh, they honored him on his retirement the one weekend. Remember, Ryan? Were you there? Yeah, they, they had... Um... They had several events, but um, but yeah, he came back as an instructor a couple times, and and so right. yeah, he was around, and and he was the guy with probably more of a personality than than he was know, showing it more, kind, kind of like Utley, where you know if you talk to these guys one on one, you get a little bit more of a window of who they are. I mean, you know, Chase Utley was always great at climbing up when it was a group interview, but if you ever got him one on one, you know, he was funny. Uh, when it was off the record, and when he was on the record, he'd give you thoughtful answers. So I think I think uh, Halliday was similar like that, where if you just were BSing with Halliday at his locker, which didn't happen all the time, obviously, maybe right. more so spring training. Um, but yeah, he was he was just a, a, a genuine person, um, a thoughtful person, and just someone that was dedicated to his craft. And ten years ago today, we saw what happens when you're dedicated to your craft like he was, and and obviously have the talent. And I think, and bring it back to the end of your question, does this change my mind? No, it makes me appreciate what he was more, Mike. Um, mm-hmm. And it also, it also makes you understand that the one thing it does reinforce, we don't know what goes on with these guys' lives. We don't know what they battle. We don't know what they, you know, what they go through. I, I remember. Yeah, we don't think, we don't think they're us. No. Because we think because they're athletes, that they're above us. We, look, they've accomplished something. I get it. But basically, they're people. You yeah, know, you know, uh, just people who happen to have a lot more money and success. Uh, you know what this? Re- yeah, you know what this reminds me of. Not to cut you off, but um, it reminds me of one of Ryan Howard's last few years. Uh, I think Sandberg maybe benched him uh, temporarily, maybe for like four or five games, something like that. And someone said something about. Uh, I think Howard said something like, would you trade places with me or something like that? Yeah, we on a Sunday game. We all kind of laughed it off because, you know, the guy was making whatever, $25 million. Well, then it came out a few months later that his family was suing him. Right. And, you know, he, he was going through this personal torment behind the scenes that we didn't know about. And so I think it just goes to show that all, all the money and all the fame doesn't necessarily add up to, to happiness or fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it can it can you know in Howard's case it can lead to you know the destruction of a family and it's really sad mm-hmm. well didn't we see that with Kobe Bryant's family yeah at yeah. one point where here's a guy who's on top of the world basically and he can't talk to his parents and he can't I mean, and you're thinking like whoa yeah back in here you know um but they're people yeah, I mean, you know yeah Halliday at one point during his uh life I think this was in Todd's book you know, part of the reason he decided to move to Florida full time, and and most athletes do this, or baseball athletes, most most baseball players do end up moving closer to where the spring training facility is because it's just easier. Uh, that's where they can train during the off season and they can just roll right into camp. But part of the reason he decided to move to Florida full time is he didn't want to go to Colorado anymore during the off season and have to face people and answer questions to people that you know thought of him as 
the best thing since sliced bread. You know what I mean? He just wanted to be Roy Halladay, the person, and not Roy Halladay, the best baseball player to come out of the state. You know what I mean? So he was dealing with some of those kind of pressures. And, you know, when you're a top top athlete like that, it's natural to to deal with those those pressures. And, And you know what? It makes you appreciate, especially in this time that we're living in, where a lot of people maybe because of the circumstances are getting on drugs or whatever, the effect that painkillers can have on people that we never think about, but you can easily become addicted to these things, even though they're supposed to help you, you know, through no fault of anybody, it just happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably, you know, the biggest um, problem in society that we don't talk about enough that um, the government doesn't address enough. Um, I think everybody knows somebody that's dealt with addiction. I mean, and, and it's scary, um, and it's not it's not the fault of that person. Once they get addicted, it's a it's a mental illness. It's a you know it's it's a it's a problem that they can't corral. Right. And and all this stuff is it's too readily available. Um, you have doctors that you know um, prescribe painkillers too easily. Um, I forget what I, I think I had a back injury about six months ago. Not nothing too severe, but. Um, I think I, I pulled it out or whatever. It, was, it, it felt really severe at the time. And I remember telling the doctor that, you know, I don't want, you know, don't give me, don't give me real painkillers. I don't want anything that I could possibly come addicted to. Like I want whatever the least, you know, strong medication that you can give me that will do the job. Uh, so yeah, it's a scary thing. It's an epidemic in society. Um, and yeah, and Roy Halliday goes to show that, Anybody's susceptible. Even 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 the Superman on the baseball field uh, can can become affected by this. And you know, it's funny we're, we're talking to Ryan Lawrence and, and Mike, and I uh, are kind of reflecting on the uh, life of Roy Halladay, which is obviously celebrated on this 10th anniversary of his uh, perfect game. You know, I remember in '12 he gave that press conference up at City Field uh, when he went on the DL for the first time. And I remember the look on his eye, like he knew this was not good. Like he, it, it was a shoulder, but it was connected a little bit with his back. And I, I remember thinking, this is a guy who knows that he's in for a battle now. And we saw those final two years, Ryan. He tried. He tried like hell to come back. Well, and and you know what that says about him, and and this is. Right down like, to that meaningless start at the end of September of thirteen that he came back just for that one time in my ass. Yeah, but but what that what that says about him in his last two years is that he he valued the contract that he signed and he felt obligated to do everything in his power to honor that contract. He wanted to be on the field for the Phillies. He wanted to be on the mound for the fans who paid tickets. There was one night in – so another year that he went on the DL, I think it was right before he had surgery, we had a press conference just to – they gathered the press together in uh, San Francisco in the dugout, mm-hmm. and it was about him going on the DL, and I think he was going to have some kind of uh, procedure. Well, two days later, we were in Arizona, and uh, the Phillies were about to play the Diamondbacks, and Halliday called the media back together, and he wanted to apologize to the fans – for the fact that he was going on the DL and he was unable to pitch. Imagine that. I remember Imagine that. modern-day athlete apologizing to the fans for the fact that they're going on the DL and can't pitch. 
I'm going to yep. tell you, for every Roy Halladay, there are 10 other athletes, and I can tell you, I can name names, but I'm not going to, that will go on the DL, will disappear, you won't even see them the rest of the year, and they're continuing to collect their big money paychecks. They're making fifteen, twenty, twenty-five million dollars. There was one guy who there was one guy in that rotation who did the same thing after he got hurt and refused to get surgery and just literally went back to the farm. And right? you never saw him again. You never saw him when they had the uh, the reunion of, of the team. Nope. So yeah, Roy Halladay though, and 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 a lot of guys are like that. Well, Roy Halladay was the accept, accept, exception to that. He was such a professional, and he felt so obligated to the contract that it pained him. It pained him to not fulfill that contract, and that's why he literally apologized for it. You know what's funny, guys? Because I feel two ways. I feel fortunate that we had him for four or five years, you know, three good years, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I almost feel cheated that we only had him for that long. I, yeah, it, it would have yeah. been great if he could have been like a Steve Carlton and been here like for 15 years, you know, or or most of his career. Um, well, but the, I'm luck. I'm, I think I'm lucky that I got to see him for those three real good years. Well, and the main yeah. the main question is what would have happened if the Phillies got him in 09 instead of Lee? Yeah, I don't I don't think a whole lot would have changed. I mean, Cliff Lee was sensational down the stretch. Uh, obviously, he was option B. You know, no, what would have happened if they had both of them? In That's the question. Yeah. You know, they could have got – they were trying to work out that trade for with J.A. Happ that was involved, and, and they couldn't do it. Um, but they would have played the Yankees with both of those guys in the rotation. Well, yeah, they, they, they could have made both of those trades that, that July. I mean, that would have really emptied out the farm system. I, I'm not sure that was ever on the table to make both those trades that July. Uh-huh. Because uh, they also just acquired Pedro Martinez a week or two before that. Um, but, yeah, that would have been fun. Uh, imagine World Series rotation with – um, Cole Hamels, Roy Halladay, Cliff Lee, and Pedro Martinez. Yeah, it, I mean, it's yeah, you would have had two Hall of Famers and a guy who would have won, uh, you know, won a Cy Young in there. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the what the what ifs are fun. Um, I, I guess the what the the thing that I feel uh, bad about the most is that Roy Halladay didn't get a chance to compete in the World Series because I mean, you know, yeah. every time the Dodgers get to the World Series. I find myself rooting for the Dodgers because Clayton Kershaw is one of the all-time greats. Yeah. I love watching an all-time great on the biggest stage. And yeah. to me, Roy Halladay didn't get that opportunity, and it's, it's tragic. Hey, to either, to you guys, do you think this is fair? The game I'm going to remember him for the most, well, I mean the perfect game and the no-hitter, obviously, is the last that game against the Cardinals that he lost one nothing. Yeah. I just thought that night, what he showed me that night, in battling through, I think he lasted eight innings. Um, yeah, he, but he got out of that jam in the seventh when he probably should have had nothing left. That to me was Roy Halladay, even though they lost, you know, even though they couldn't score. But that to me was just the guy was going to battle and give you everything he had and leave it out there. Well, I'll tell you what, and Zalecki is pointing out in the book that's the night he hurt his his back. That Brandy oh, really? Brandy Halladay has said that that's the night when the back kind of went for the first time. Oh, okay. Um. But yeah, he was a monster. But that, that that game was uh, that game was like the epitome of, of who he was. I mean, every yeah. time he took the ball, he prepared to go nine innings. And the first inning, he gave up a run, and then that was it. And yeah. you know that that's so. I miss that kind of baseball. And I, I I don't expect every pitcher to be Roy Halladay, you know, for sure. But I miss you know a pitcher taking the ball in the first inning with the opportunity to control the game 
for the duration of the game. And that's, well, how, that's how he prepared in the offseason. That's how Well, you know, the funny thing is, everybody wants to see six, five games. I get it. That's the way the sports are now. You know, we want NFL to be 38, 35. Give me that kind of game. Not all the time. That was a great game. Yeah. Even though the Phillies lost, and even though they had like five, whatever they had. Three hits. That was an, to see those two guys battling that night, that was awesome. Yeah, and if you haven't read the book yet, uh, Chris Carpenter, who was the other uh, pitcher in that night, is basically Roy Halladay's best friend. Right. You know, they, they came up together in the Toronto Blue Jays organization and you know had similar struggles as young prospects. And you know they stayed in touch throughout their entire lives. They went on you know vacations together, and uh, and and Zlucky did a really good job of you know reaching out to everyone um, who touched Halliday's life. But there's a lot of Chris Carpenter quotes uh, throughout the book that are very uh, informative, telling, and uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend the book. And wasn't that the last game Chris Carpenter won? Um, I can't remember. I think he pitched the next year. He pitched the next year, but he was hurt for a lot of it. And if I'm not mistaken, he won one playoff game. He, I think, beat the Nationals the following year. Yeah, I can't remember. Um, Ryan, I just asked this question of of Ruben. Um, 09, 10, and 11. You know, we've all heard, you know, Jimmy has said it. We have Victorino on the podcast. He mentioned that they should have got another ring in there at some point. I, I've said, and Ruben kind of hinted about the 10 team being the one that that's the missed opportunity. Would you agree? Um, yeah, probably That lost to the Giants. That was probably the most balanced team um, because, you know, we forget that it's easy to forget that Roy Oswald was a really good pitcher when he first came over. I mean, that, yeah, he was obviously hurt in 2011. Right. But in 2010, he was, you know, he was dynamite. And yeah, Worth was still in their lineup. Yeah, and, and Cole Hamels was, you know, obviously better in 10 than he was in, in 9. Uh, right, they had Worth, um, they had Ibanez. Yep. Uh, uh, so, yeah, that was probably the most balanced of the teams. And uh, But, yeah, I think the one thing, you know, not to kind of, you know, spin this positive, but the Phillies did win one World Series. And, you know, looking back, we should probably appreciate that they won one World Series. There's plenty of really good teams that look at the Dodgers. How many years have the Dodgers been really good or one of the yeah. top teams in baseball? They don't have a World Series yet. Look at the Astros. The Astros basically have a super team. They only have one World Series. That Cubs team was, you know, loaded. They only have one World Series. Uh, the Indians have been kind of contenders for the last X amount of years. They don't have a World Series ring. So, so yeah, we, we can look at the missed opportunities. Should they have won another? Maybe. But winning one is hard. And so, I mean, those that are – the people that are – our uh, age group, like me and Kevin, uh, not to say that you're that much older than us, Mike, but hey, there's people that think the 1980 team should have won three. Yeah, yeah, but what you I was gonna I mean? say, what I was gonna say is, I grew up in this town when nobody won anything. Yep. I was I was six years old when the when the uh, when the Sixers won in 1983. I don't really remember that. So I grew up all my life for, you know. From childhood to being a teenager to going away to college, or nobody won anything. Right. So you know, I kind of flip it the other way, and I think that you know, Phillies fans should be grateful, you know, not only to have that 2008 championship, but have all these other moments that happen. I still think that 09 is an underrated thing that they got back to the World Series. 
Yeah. I took the Yankees to game six, and I was a good Yankees team. Yeah, I mean, with Pedro you know, as their number two starter. When, are, I mean, no, very few teams go back to a World Series. Yeah, and in 2009. It's not easy to do. Yeah, in the first, uh, the first half of 2009, they didn't have much pitching at all. No. I mean, the, Jamie Moyer was nowhere near as good as he was in 08. Hamels uh, had the hangover. Actually, this, this will illustrate how impressive the 2009 team was. You ready? So they used to, the, the BBWA used to give uh, awards out to the end of the season, um, different awards. Do you know who the most valuable pitcher was voted on by the baseball writers for the Phillies in 2009? I'll let you both guess. Kevin? Well, I know it because I was there. Uh, okay. Mike Kern. Who's I, the, I'm not going to. It, obviously, it's not Hamels. Um, so you do know it, Kev. It's Jay Happ. Yeah, so Jay Happ was their was their most valuable pitcher in 2009, and that's not to take anything away from Jay Happ, who's gone on to have a pretty good baseball career. Um, but you know, you're talking about a World Series team, a pennant winning team, mm-hmm. and here's a guy that was in his second full year and was in rotation with guys like Hamels, uh, and you know, and so, Lids you know, didn't they, they Lids didn't do anything that year either. No, right? he struggled. He blew like nine, ten saves that year. Yeah, that was the yeah he was yeah that that was a struggle. And you talk about ultimate professionals, man. That guy was that guy was an all timer. Yeah, um, he was as good and easy to deal with in '09 as he was in '08 when he was perfect. I, I still uh, think one of the great moments in recent Philly or maybe all Philly history, I think, th- was Jimmy Rollins hitting against the Dodgers when the Dodgers were going to tie the series at two. They had their their big reliever on the mound. Jimmy's got two strikes on him. Game's over. And all of a sudden, there's this line drive in right center. Yeah. And here comes Chooch all the way around the bases. I still think that moment, even though they didn't go on to win the whole thing, that because it would have been 2-2, they might have not even beat the Dodgers. That cost me my only trip to Dodgers Stadium, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and Mike, Hey, they could have lost, lost game five just to get you there. Yeah, that's true. To, to, to build off that and to kind of circle back, to, to bring Halliday back into, into this too, Halliday said that at the end, I guess after you know when he retired, that he he learned to appreciate the journey, and he really didn't regret the fact that he never got to a World Series because he appreciated the fact that he had an opportunity to get there. That when he joined the Phillies, you know he joined one of the best teams in baseball, and they had the opportunity, and and he did everything he could to to make that happen. It didn't happen, but he couldn't regret that because. He did everything in his power to make it happen, and it just didn't happen. So I think, you know, when, when we're singling out all these moments, like you just said, Jimmy Rollins' walk-off hit, um, <laughs> the perfect game, the playoff no-hitter, all these things happened in years that the Phillies didn't win the World Series. But guess what? Those were all moments that we're still talking about now. Yeah. Yeah. And, think so of all, and think of all the great players, Ryan, like you're saying, that never get to a World Series. Right. Ken Griffey was never in a World Series, right? Um, Ted Williams only made one. Ted Williams made one, uh, but I'm just—if I mean Ernie Banks obviously never got to a World Series. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I mean, if you go through the history of baseball, there's a lot of guys in all sports, not just baseball. But it's amazing that you know when you're a great player, sometimes you know the best you're going to do is try to get. Yeah, there. yeah. So I, I think you know, and I don't want to underplay championships. Championships are what everybody you know wants to see at the end of the day, and championships are what uh, players play for. But I think in the tale of Roy Halladay uh, and, you know, that Phillies era, 
that those moments are just as memorable as the championship. I mean, that perfect game, that playoff no-hitter, again, those are things that we're going to talk about, I think, just just as much as we're going to talk about a World Series championship. I mean, so I think we have to appreciate those moments and the fact that we got to see them uh, in person or on TV or however you consumed it. Um, your team made those moments happen. And so I think, you know, as a fan, you should appreciate the fact that you have those memories. Yeah. Then again, I can't get over the fact that 2010 giant lineup was hot garbage with Cody Ross and Burl and Rowan and yeah, but that's the history of baseball. Kevin, I know Cody Ross turns into a hero. Um, that happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, the Kansas baseball, Royals hockey, fairly I, awesome. yeah, how many times in hockey do you see some guy that, you, you know, is just average guy and all of a sudden he's the MVP of the playoffs. I, I, yeah. Um, you just have to get there. You just have to get to the playoffs and, you know, hope, Hope your pitchers are pitching well at the time. Hope your hitters are hitting well at the time. So, you know, you just have to get there. And once you get there, you can make the most of it. So, let, let me, Ryan, while I have you here, let me ask about the topic du jour, if you will, with this uh, with this sport. Are they going to play this year? Uh, I think so. I know you don't, but um, I just think, you know, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily look great when you know everything, all the negotiation is done through the media. Um, if this was happening 10 years ago, I don't think everybody would be as well with me because not everything, every single minute of every negotiation would be reported and on social media constantly. Um, I just think both sides have too much to lose by not playing. So I think one way or the other, they're going to get together and you know, each side's going to have to make concessions and they're going to play. Again, they have too much to lose, both sides, by not playing at all. So one way or another, they'll, they'll make it happen. But do you think, Ryan, and I tend to agree with you only because for that reason, like there's too much. But can you see this, though, them just saying, like, screw it, you know? And I think it's going to be more the Players Association because I don't think the owners are going to budge too much. Um, I think it's the players that are probably going to have to budge a little, at least. But could you, I mean, what, what would that do if two weeks from now somebody tells us, oh, that's it, no baseball? Because if the players want to play 100 games to get their money, they better do it pretty damn quick. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't even – I haven't, like, dug too deep in the logistics of it. Uh, I don't know if they would have to, like, play doubleheaders every Saturday or how that would work. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, is there a chance that they could not have a season? Yeah, I guess so, um, if the players are going to be that firm. Um, and, yeah, I, I think that would be tragic. Um and then you wonder, you know, with the collective bargaining agreement, I think that expires after the 2021 season, whether that comes into play for next season. Um, I mean, it's just it's a bad look for the game. Um, but I also just think that we're reading a little bit too much into the, the day-to-day negotiations. I mean, again, if negotiations were taking place behind closed doors, yeah, I don't think we would be as concerned. Um, I just think that this is just how negotiations work. And, you know agreements think about going to go buy a car you're usually not walking away with that car the first time you go to the dealership right there's usually some back and forth going on um we're not reading about that back and forth on twitter you're just going to buy a car um so i I think that a lot of that back and forth is just i think it's just uh sending a message right now that it looks bad but i don't necessarily think that that means that they won't come to an agreement i think the only thing that i kind of view on this though is has the damage already been done? Do they look like such jackasses already 
No, I don't think that. No, I, 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 I think <clears throat> there, there might be a certain segment of people, but I think, I think baseball fans are still going to watch baseball when baseball is available. Um, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it's still a game that brings enjoyment to people. And yeah, sure. There are people that maybe baseball is their number one sport and they won't pay attention, whatever. And, that, and that's um, where I think the fear is. I think the fear is, you already were sliding in a lot of ways, and now you may be giving some other people a shot to walk away. You know? Yeah, I don't know. I still think it's a it's a pretty popular game yeah. with a loyal with a loyal uh, fan base. That I think that's a little, you know, yeah, maybe there'll be a residual effect for the first you know year or whatever. But I mean, look at nineteen ninety four. Um, you know, baseball recovered. They came back. So. Took steroids. I think I think people forget, <laughs> Kevin. Yeah, I mean. I understand what you're saying. I, I, I totally get it. But people forget because eventually they watch it. You know, so if there's a if there's a bad labor dispute and then it gets settled and then they start playing and they have an agreement for five years, let's say, or whatever, okay, well, a year or so down the road, people ain't going to remember the bad labor dispute. No, no. They're going to watch baseball, and if the Phillies are good, they're going to be excited. Yeah. Right. In this town. Yeah. It's just what we're talking about now because that's all there is to talk about. So, that's um true. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we're overanalyzing it a little bit too much just because, again, because the negotiations are taking place through the media. Ryan Lawrence, our good buddy. Uh, miss you, man. Don't see it. Don't get to see you as much. And uh, thank you for joining us. don't get us. to see anybody as much. We're, in, we're living through a global pandemic, Kevin. By the way, congratulations, Ryan. Uh, Ryan got engaged. Oh, way to go, man. Thank you. Tremendous. You can have that takeout pizza for the, uh, if you can't have a wedding, just get a lot of pizza, you know. That's on the table. (laughs) Hey, you could do a lot worse. Yeah, I know. You know? The, uh, yeah, so we, uh, I know if you have the takeout pizza, Charlie will be there. I'll be there to help with Charlie. Well, no. Holy Tomato is a favorite of Charlie's. Charlie Manuel is a, yeah, uh, it's. Charlie's favorite South Jersey pizza. It Thanks was pretty good, Lawrence. Kevin. I know. I mean, oh, it was great. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, it was. It's, it's a pretty easy drive, too. It's just, um, you know, 15-minute drive from South Philly, just over the Walt Women Bridge, boom, right off 42. Should get him as a sponsor, Colonel. You know? You hey, I, whatever, man. <laughs> I'm just sitting here in my living room in Northeast Philly. I mean, I, you know, what do you want me to do? Exactly. Ryan, thanks. Michael, All right, guys. see you Thanks on uh, see you on uh, Tuesday, Mike. We'll have uh, Tom Shredinchek, Pat McLoon, and uh, Ed Kratz on to talk about. Oh, hey, I, I like those guys. Tell them I said hi. Absolutely. We'll talk uh, to them about the future of sports media after the pandemic. How are you going to cover games? So this ought to be uh, interesting, especially for guys who are not in it anymore. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, guys. All right. Hold on, Mike. All right, so final segment of the show. Uh, it, it, you know, anything, like, it's strange. We're hearing now the NBA is having a little bit of difficulty with their comeback plans. The NHL now saying they won't play till August. But the baseball one is the one that sticks out, isn't it? Well, yeah, but the NHL seems like they're pretty confident. See, I think what people forget in all this, Kevin, is it's a lot more complicated than we sometimes let on. Yeah. Like, they've been talking about this for over a month now, right? I mean, mm-hmm. all the leagues basically have been floating stuff. They, 
you know, and the NHL kind of caught us by surprise because they, you know, nobody was really paying much attention to them. I mean, think about it. We never thought it would take to August to get back. Yep. You know, uh, but it appears it might. Yep. And maybe the NBA will be August also. I, 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 you know, and if that goes into football season, if there is football season, which it seems like they're planning there's going to be, um, you know, how does that impact everything? Uh, we could go from having no sports to like 24-7 sports yep. for a while, as long as there's not a resurgence or something. Um, but, I, you know, I guess it just takes – there's so many areas to cover, you know, and, and it's the health, it's the money, it's the, it's the logistics, it's, it's, it's a lot, man. It's, you know, and they've never had to do this before. No. There is no plan. Um, and having to make it up on the fly – Test the leadership abilities of your union and your and your uh, your organization, and I think we're learning a little bit about how Although, nimble they have to be on their feet. I, I do think, though, Kevin, and maybe I'm wrong in this, that, and I don't know how people perceive this three months ago. Mm-hmm. I think that the NBA and the NHL have an advantage, only in that they've played 65 games. Yeah, they had a season. Okay, w- whatever you think about, it, hey, the Sixers were this. They the Lakers were this. The Flyers were this. They can resume basically yep. in a playoff mode yep. if need be. The NBA might have to play some games for money. I don't know. The baseball is trying to start from scratch. It's tough. And they're trying to start from scratch three or four months behind where they would have started. I, I just think they have the toughest road. I, I, I really do. And um, – and I don't think we thought that three months ago. Now, and I'll mention what our buddy Les Bowen mentioned um, when he talked about the Eagles. Everybody, the NFL's had it easy to this point. Now it's going to start to get difficult. The states begin to open, and you wonder if, and you wonder if they're going to have the ability to have a, a, a you know tr- uh, mini camps, training camps, all that. And that's where the that's where the rubber's going to meet the road. Well, the NFL though, Kevin seems. To me, like come hell or high water, and you've said this several times, they're going to do it. Now, are they going to do it the way they think they're going to do it? You know, are they going to have, you know, the interesting thing somebody brought up, I was listening to some radio station last night. Let's say the Texas governor has just come out and said they're going to have 25% of capacity. Yep. You know, whatever. What if the Eagles can't have any capacity? What if the Giants can't have capacity? What if the Redskins can't have capacity? Is, is there an equal playing field there? And will the commissioner go to the Cowboys and say, you can't have 25% because none of the teams in your division have 25%. Yeah. Like, there's another thing that I don't know how that's going to work. You know, will Governor Wolf feel Comfortable. Um, pressured yeah. into saying, okay, you know, and then you're going to have national pressure from, you know, in the midst of an of a, a campaign. Yeah. Uh, and there's so many, you know, but I just think that, and this is why I thought I think baseball is going to figure out a way to get it done. I could be naive because there's so much at stake economically, socially, mm-hmm. politically, um, you name it. And I think, you know, things like minor league baseball may go by the wayside. That's that's a whole different story. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just it's, – it's really going to be interesting to see how just what the timeline – of all this is going to be. But I would venture to say by Labor Day, I'm going to guess we're going to be in the midst of some NBA playoffs. Mm-hmm. 
We're going to be in the midst of an NHL playoff. And the NFL is going to be getting ready to start. Whether it's going to be fans or not, I don't know. And college football, it sure sounds like... They're going to try. They're, and in some, in a lot of cases, it seems like they're going to try with fans. Yep. You know? Yep. I don't know. And, uh, and we may not even open. No. I mean, it's, Philadelphia it's, may not even open. Well, no. Actually, it was funny. As we were talking, I got an alert okay. on my phone. Uh, right. Marin Health Commissioner... Health Commissioner uh, unveil a plan for Philly to op- reopen, begin reopening June, next Friday. June 5th. Okay, June yep. 4th or June 5th. Um, and is that coming from the governor also, I guess? The governor's... I I have not gotten that yet. So. Yeah, because I don't know how... Yeah, I, look, that makes sense because, look, a lot of what's going on in Philadelphia is not in Northeast Philadelphia, okay? Or maybe not in South... But, but you have to take the city as a whole. Yep. Now, I was reading a story yesterday that Montgomery County, I think yesterday or the day before, had like a real high uh, level. Spike. Of, yeah. So what does that mean? Like, I, I don't, I don't, nobody knows. Nobody it, knows. You know, everybody points to these these government officials. Well, they're wrong. They're Well, maybe they're wrong, but maybe they're not wrong because yeah. um, nobody knows. And um, I, I, what the, the problem as I see it is if you get started and there's no interruptions it's great even if you go slow even if it's awkward it's when the interruptions occur yeah I agree. or or how do you you know is there a plan you know you've asked this question several times we both have you know if three players get test positive or three trainers test positive or three umpires test positive what does that mean like what happens yeah you know and i don't know mm. um you know maybe it'll be a vaccine sooner than we think who knows you know, but are, are they going to vaccinate uh, 25% of the crowd going into Texas Stadium? I don't know. <laughs> and and then the, 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 the funny thing is they were talking about Eagle fans going down there. Yeah. So you're an Eagle fan. You, do you want to fly to death? You know something, Kevin, I was thinking about. This is a total aside. Our country's been shut down for three months, mm-hmm. basically, right? Yep. When we open, one of the things about this is nobody travels from region to region. You know, nobody goes from Philly to L.A. or Philly to Chicago. Or, or when we open and we start traveling again. That's when the problems. Well, doesn't that bring another? I mean, wasn't yeah. that the whole reason why we kind of, because if there's a problem in Philly and we take the problem elsewhere. Yeah. I, so there's another thing that I, that yeah. I don't know what that's going to mean. And the fact that this is an election year and it's going to get nasty. Um. I said on Twitter today that this is going to be a very long summer. I'm fall. Tuesday, we have our wrap-up. Our wrap-up, excuse me. Our roundtable with uh, Ed Kratz of SI, who covers the Eagles, Pat McLoon, the sports editor of the Inquirer. Yes, I said the Inquirer, Kern. No, now they're the Inquirer. It's okay now. But he was at the Daily News for like 35 years. I understand. Okay. And and Tom Shredencheck of Fox 29 will talk about where sports you don't, even, you don't even need me, by the way, but well, yeah, you bring Kevin, you bring a special. somebody who worked at the Daily News for 38 years and you were part of the Daily News with Teddy. It just kind of infuriates me a little that we're getting to this point, And I understand why where the Daily News is like no longer mentioned, but yet nobody's come out and said that. Like nobody no. said there's no there's still a Daily News. You can still buy it, but everything's inquired. And I get that. But. I was Daily News, but Pat right now 
is the um, whatever his official executive title, sports editor of of the Inquirer. Inquirer. And he used to say Inquirer in Daily News, but I guess yeah. it doesn't say that anymore. And, well, but because I the website's Inquirer.com. Right, right, right. But if I cut Pat open, he's going to bleed Daily News. Okay, well, I if mean, you, you cut know Pat that, open, that. that's not going to be good. Well, it's a little one, a little he, flesh wound. He won't. He won't make the show. He probably won't come on then. Now, but but look, he, it is what it is. It's the it, and I get it. The the, the Inquirer is the bigger paper. It should be. That's how they should market themselves. I I totally understand it. But when I see like a Marcus Hayes, I'm just like, well, he's a Daily News guy. I I can't help it. It, it doesn't make it bad or good. I don't think any different of Sealski because I think of him as an Inquirer guy. He, you know, he's a good guy. I you know, it's just we had our little. We had our little niche in the world there, and I'm very proud that I was a part of it for so long. I understand. I was at a paper that was moldy prawn uh, the same way. You don't hear me talking about it anymore. Yeah, I mean when you when you met Teddy, yeah, I'm sure Teddy was he he bled daily. Oh, Teddy news, right? still bleeds daily news. I know, I know, I know. Teddy's worse than you in that sense. Like he, well, I'm not worse. I don't go around. No, but Teddy like. I think it's still oh, more know. personal than than you are with this. Yeah. Well, Ted, the reason Teddy took it, I know why Teddy did that. It was just, um, yeah, I, I, you know, you know, Teddy. It was Teddy against the world. Yeah, and and Teddy usually won. Yeah, um, and he took, uh, yeah, hey, look, you know, it was good when we had a rivalry with the Inquirer. Sure, I mean, it was, it was, um, it was intense, but it wasn't like um, I didn't hate those guys. I don't think they hated us. But we had a rivalry. You know, you were trying to beat somebody on a story. or You were trying sure. to write a better story. And and that's when journalism, well, hell, I'm not saying journalism's not good now, but I'm saying that made journalism better. When it, was, was, when it was. There was a time when there was four papers. Christ, when you, when you, we had Bob on a couple weeks ago, Ford, talk about him and Jasner, and they weren't running buddies. No, no, no. And it was surprising. I remember having that conversation with Bob years ago when we were on the road somewhere. And. And he was kind of like a He wasn't apologizing, but he was trying to explain to me why. I said, "Bob, I get it. You, you know, Phil was trying to beat you, yeah. and you were trying to beat him. I, I totally." And Phil, Phil had his ways about him. Yeah. You know, Phil, you know, we all have our ways about us. Um, and like Joe and I were 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 rivals, but Joe and I were best of friends. Do you ever so, want to? Did you ever want to throw headphones at anybody? Oh, uh, you didn't have, see, you ah! went the whole show. You went the whole show. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I ever got mad at somebody from the Inquirer. And I don't think in all the years, but see, most of the guys I covered things with, they were my friends. Mark Narducci was my friend. Um, Mike Jensen's a friend. Joe Giuliano, Bob Ford, Mike. I mean, like who at the Inquirer? Frank Fitzpatrick. I mean, we would walk into press rooms and these guys, yeah, we'd be buddy buddies. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. You, Kevin, look, I've gotten mad before. I mean. I've I, seen I, it. I can lose my temper, but I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm going to get Shred and Check on actually to talk about you losing your temper temper to one time. When was that? Houston. Oh, uh, yeah. But, but that we, we were having fun, though. I mean, that was kind of like. I did that for effect a little bit because um, we, we were trying to. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we've been working so hard for like three straight weeks that we were just like kind of letting it out. Um, and there was a Shredder's, trigger point. Shredder's got a great story. He's going to have to tell you about Temple 
playing Florida in the second round New Orleans 2001. All right. It is awesome. So that's Tuesday. All right, Michael. Appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Have a good weekend. Have a good weekend to everybody else. Glad you could join us. This has been Working to Be. Our thanks to Ruben Amaro for joining us. I'm Ryan Lawrence. Have a good weekend. Everybody stay safe. Take care. Well, you went uptown riding in your limousine with your